Good evening. This is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. (coughs) Pardon me. Governor Tony Evers announced a $5 million investment today to make telehealth services, including mental and behavioral health services, more accessible. This will be done by bolstering child psychiatry telehealth services and establishing neighborhood access points through money from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. $2.5 million will go toward creating a new grant program for hospitals and health systems to expand and enhance child psychiatry, child psychiatry telehealth services. The remaining $2.5 million will be used for a grant program for providers to partner with community organizations to establish neighborhood telehealth access points for people with limited access to technology or reliable internet service. Activists from Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or Expo, and legislators met in the state capitol yesterday for what was called a Day of Action and Empathy. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that participants learned best ways to approach elected officials regarding issues related to incarceration in the state. Wisconsin currently has the highest incarceration rate for African-American adults in the country, with one out of every 36 currently in a state-run prison. Sylvester Jackson, a formerly incarcerated organizer with the group, said the point of the Empathy and Action Day was, quote, to get those who we elect in office more involved in what people want and need in our communities. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Madison will use more than $40 million in federal funding to buy more than two dozen electric buses for the first phase of the city's bus rapid transit system, pushing the city's goal for an all-electric BRT closer to reality. A resolution to authorize a contract with New Flyer of Winnipeg, Manitoba to purchase the initial 27 zero-emission buses will be introduced next week. The buses will run along the BRT's 15-and-a-half-mile route from East Town to West Town Mall. Each of Metro's current buses uses approximately 5,600 gallons of diesel fuel each year. The electric buses are expected to conserve nearly a quarter million gallons of fuel annually, therefore. With no gas-powered buses, excuse me, with no gas-powered engines, transmissions, intakes, or exhaust systems, electric vehicles can also save up to $125,000 in maintenance costs per vehicle during the lifetime of each bus. After a two-year test, the pandemic-inspired program that lets Madison's restaurants and bars expand outdoor seating will be made permanent. Also, according to the Wisconsin State Journal, the streetery program will allow the expansion of outdoor dining into the sidewalks, terraces, alleys, and parking lanes. This change was made on a temporary basis first in 2020 due to the pandemic and then extended first through 2021 and then currently until April 14th. Approval for the program carries a series of conditions related to sound, hours of operation, storage, and enforcement. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Earlier today, the Marquette Law School released a new poll showing what the public thinks about U.S. Supreme Court candidate Katanji Brown-Jackson. Our reporter Layla Ma has the story. 
The poll today from the Marquette Law School shows that around two thirds of the public support confirming contending Brown Jackson as a Supreme Court justice. This survey was conducted over a two-week period earlier this month, interviewing over a thousand adults across the nation. The poll finds that support for contending Brown Jackson is around 66%. It also found that more people supported her confirmation after listening to the confirmation hearings. The poll also found that Brown Jackson is more popular and looked at more favorably than other justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. Although 38% of people say that they don't know enough about her, 44% of people still say they think favorably about Brown Jackson. Black adults had the most positive view of Brown Jackson, with 86% of Black adults polled saying they support her. 76% of Hispanic respondents say they support her confirmation. Only 59% of White respondents said they supported her confirmation. Women tended to have more favorable support for her than men. Brown Jackson's approval rating varies drastically by party, with around 90% of liberals supporting her, compared to only 40% support for her confirmation among conservatives. The poll also looked at the court's approval ratings. Since their last poll in January, public perceptions of the court has slightly increased, with around 54% of people saying they approve of the U.S. Supreme Court, up from 52% in January. The Marquette Law School poll is slated to release more poll results tomorrow, with findings on the national political landscape and about the war in Ukraine. Reporting for WORT News, Emily Lama. With the 2022 spring election less than a week away now, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt headed to McFarland to check out the candidates running there for a seat on the Dane County Board. District 34 on the Dane County Board of Supervisors represents McFarland and some areas around Stoughton and Oregon. The two candidates running for the seat are incumbent Patrick Miles and Herb Taylor. Miles has represented this district on the Dane County Board since 2006 and had previously ran for the state assembly in 2012, losing in the Democratic primary. Miles first got involved in local politics in 2000 when he was elected as a village trustee in the town of McFarland. Miles says that he is running for re-election because he still sees value in what he provides to the community. I continue to have that same enthusiasm and appreciation for the service I bring, but also the partnerships and work with others that I'm able to do. And there's things I still want to accomplish. Taylor did not respond to multiple requests for comment on his campaign over the past week. 
Taylor's campaign website states that he first moved to McFarland in 2012 after graduating from UW-Madison in 2008 with a history degree. He now owns several liquor stores around the Madison area. Taylor says that he is running because he wants to see more representation on the county board. He tells the Oregon Observer that he believes that diversity of thought is the most important form of diversity and that he would like to see the removal of what he calls groupthink from the board. In that same interview, Taylor said that one of the most important issues facing the county is over-politicization. He says that applying political solutions to non-political problems, such as education and public health, ends up with nothing being done to solve the issue. Another issue that Taylor says he wants to address is criminal justice reform. In an interview with the Herald Independent and McFarland Thistle, he says that criminal justice reform has come to mean not enforcing the law and that crime rates have risen dramatically throughout the county. According to the Dane County Sheriff's Office, arrests have slightly dropped between 2020 and 2021. Miles says that there are a variety of issues he is concerned with, from small-scale projects like addressing trailheads in his district to creating equity-focused criminal justice reform. Miles also says that he wants to help the county grow financially after the pandemic. I, I chair personnel and finance, and that puts me in a unique position of seeing and providing oversight to our response to the pandemic. And as we come out of the pandemic and look towards recovery, we have you know, the, the federal funds that we've received have been incredibly helpful. And um, the county executive has targeted several uses for those. And we as a board have required a certain level of information come from the departments to make sure that those dollars are being used effectively. And as we move forward over the next couple of years, that we're keeping close eye on where the most acute needs are and making adjustments as we need to. Taylor says that he is running because he doesn't like how Patrick Miles is representing the district. In an interview with the McFarland Thistle, Taylor accused Miles of defunding the police through his push to end certain jail fees. But Miles says that not only is it not true that he has tried to take away police money, but he actually voted to increase police funding in last year's budget. Miles says that his years on the board and his willingness to talk with people about his platform makes him a better representative of his district. Up until very recently, I, you know, my, my opponent hasn't been communicating with people about who he is and what he stands for. And the experience that I have in the leadership role I play on the county board gives, it makes me a more effective, productive representative of our of our district than somebody coming in without that experience. The 2022 spring election takes place next Tuesday on April 5th. A reminder that if you are voting absentee, be sure to submit your absentee ballot sooner rather than later to make sure that your vote is counted on election day. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wacky Hout. A new legislative package seeks to restore voting rights to people serving out their prison sentences on parole or probation. As of last summer, some 63,000 Wisconsinites were under community supervision, none of whom were eligible to cast a ballot. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin's spring election is next week, but thousands of residents will be barred from casting their ballots. Wisconsin doesn't allow anyone convicted of a felony who's serving out their sentence on parole or probation to vote, something a new legislative package hopes to address. 
The Unlock the Vote package would permit people out on community supervision, a term for parole and probation, to cast a ballot. At a legislative lobbying day Tuesday, Eau Claire Representative Jody Emerson, a Democrat, said some folks can be on community supervision for decades. Sometimes people are on papers for 20 and 30 years. It's not just six months and done. Then we get back to taxation without representation, which was what our original revolution was about in this country. According to the Department of Corrections, more than 68,000 Wisconsinites are on probation, parole, or extended supervision. The bills won't pass anytime soon as the legislature isn't scheduled to reconvene until 2023, after this year's spring and fall elections. For the lobbying day, advocates were able to speak directly with legislators. It was organized by the group Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, or EXPO. Ramaya Whiteside with the group says he spent more than two decades in Wisconsin's penal system, split between incarceration and community supervision. He says he lost his right to vote when he was 17, before he had the chance to cast a ballot. They took my right to vote until the year 2042. For going on three years now, I've paid taxes, and I'll continue to pay taxes because that's what you do when you invest in our republic. However, who represents me? Folks convicted of felonies in Wisconsin are permitted to vote after they serve the full length of their sentences, either in prison or on community supervision. In addition to restoring voting rights for those on parole and probation, the legislation also would establish voter registration programs for county jails and redefine how the state counts people incarcerated during the decennial redistricting process. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.19 and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. Early yesterday, the workers at the Starbucks on the Capitol Square announced that they are joining the wave of Starbucks outlets across the country that have sought to form a union. That includes two other Starbucks locations in Wisconsin, which announced last month their plans to unionize. Earlier today, our producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Matthew Beattie, a shift supervisor at the Madison Starbucks, and one of those seeking to organize the workers there. So, Matthew, yesterday your Starbucks announced that they were looking to unionize. So to begin, why did you decide to try and form a union? What are you looking to achieve through a union and why? Uh, yeah, so I guess kind of for us, you know, we've had been having these like frustrations with watching the uh, company's profits grow more and more and our pay has continued to lag more and more you know, and just not keeping up with inflation and things, you know, we've got a lot of students here at our store and a lot of us, you know, we struggle to pay rent that is increasing more and more down in downtown Madison, you know, and I think there's been also a lot of frustration throughout the pandemic with how uh, policies have been handled and how little say we've had in the shifting policies of things that go on in the store. So, and, you know, being out right across from the Capitol there, we, we see all sorts of protests and everything. I think it's kind of 
given us an insight into seeing what the power of a community coming together was. And I think that kind of with all of that together has inspired us to come together as a store to advocate for ourselves, you know? And how many hourly workers there have voiced their support for a union? What do your coworkers think of this? So at our store, it has been an overwhelming majority in favor. You know, uh, a lot of our students are all, you know, all we had to do was approach them and be like, hey, you know, we're forming this union. Do you want to be involved? And they're like, absolutely. And super involved, you know, and especially among the uh, shift team, you know, we're all just all for it and just going for it. And there's a lot of support in the store. So a lot of people are super excited. And in the press release that you guys put out yesterday, there it specifically talked about how the pandemic sort of changed things. What was it like working there during the pandemic and now in the last couple of months when things have sort of lightened up a little bit? Yeah, it was it was interesting working at our store. You know, we started out well, originally we started with the store just closed for those first couple months, like a lot of other places. And then, you know, then we opened back up and we were just like at the door. And then a little bit later, we, you know, had people walking in and up to the counter to order, but no one was staying. And, you know, that was an interesting time to be around that area. And especially with the mask mandates, you know, most people would, you know, they'd wear them. But then, you know, a lot of times people would fight us on it. And then that's kind of when policy started to shift. And, you know, the company was like, we know, we know you guys want to be safe and wear your mask and have the customers, but we're not going to allow you to enforce it for all these various reasons. And I think there was a lot of discontent in the store due to that. And then, you know, as the pandemic went on, especially in the last few months here, we went through this period where, you know, it was almost like the pandemic existed only for the work people working at the store, but the customers were free to pretend like nothing was happening, you know? And so we had this policy where customers could come in they could wear their masks, they could not wear their masks. But at the same time as Omicron was taking off, they were like, they were telling us that we had to wear medical masks, at least. We couldn't wear cloth masks. So I think there's a lot of frustration being like, okay, well, why do we have to take all these extra precautions? But our customers get to pretend like it's not, you know. So I think for a lot of us, it kind of showed this part of the company where they they want to focus more on like customer comfort than like the safety and comfort of their employees, which I think has frustrated a lot of people. Now, you are not the first Starbucks to attempt to unionize here in Wisconsin, with two other locations announcing last month that they are also looking to form a union. I want to ask, have you spoken with anyone from those stores, or have you looked to them at all to help you form your decision? Yeah, so we've been in talks with members of the other stores. I personally have not yet had a chance with the busyness of yesterday, as you can imagine, I haven't gotten a chance, but several members of our store have, in fact, reached out to uh, that store as well. And uh, we've talked with some of the um, members of the stores out at the Buffalo stores as well. And they've all, you know, they've 
given us information that's been very helpful to, you know, consider and things to think about. So it's been a great resource to have. And now on the other side of the coin there, have you heard any response from Starbucks corporate yet? What have they said to you? So I sent out the email yesterday morning. We have not heard anything, any information back yet from corporate. Um, You know, I imagine sometime in the next week, there will be some kind of response. But so far, we haven't really heard anything. And sort of looking maybe a little bit more broadly, what does your Starbucks unionizing mean in the scheme of, I know there's a a movement going on right now. A growing movement. Yeah, Yeah, a growing movement of Starbucks across the nation forming a union. How How do you sort of see yourself sort of in that movement? Yeah, so I think, you know, it kind of starts off with, uh, you know, a store here and there, and they can unionize and they make it successfully. And then, you know, the other stores in that community start being like, well, they can do it, so why can't we? And it kind of like adds to this growing effect that we're seeing across the country of more and more stores. You know, it started off, you know, in Buffalo with just a couple of stores going and then a couple more stores in Buffalo. And then as that grew, you started seeing more and more stores elsewhere in the country. So I think with our store in particular, I think a lot of us are hoping that we can be an inspiration for the other stores in the area to be like, Hey, this is something you can do. You can come together and you can advocate for yourselves, you know, and work on getting that seat at the table that we're all looking for. And now your announcement yesterday, narrowing it down a little bit, came at the same time as Colectivo Coffee was announced to be the largest cafe union in the nation. And of course, Colectivo based here in Wisconsin. And sort of going off both that and your store here, do you have anything to say to other cafes and things like that here in Wisconsin? Yeah, I mean, I would say first off that... um, we stand in solidarity with the workers at Collectivo and their ongoing fight to get a fair negotiation. And to the other cafe stores, I would say, you know, you're stronger together. You, when, you know, we stand together for each other, not just like us partners at Starbucks standing for other Starbucks partners, but when all of us baristas can come together and stand for each other. And I think it makes a better and safer working environment for all of us where we can get more out of the work that we do. And Matthew, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me today? I would just say I'd call on Starbucks to fairly negotiate with us and to end the unfair labor practices that they've been uh, utilizing across the country. I've been speaking with Matthew Beattie, a shift shift supervisor at the Madison Starbucks on the Capitol Square and one of the organizers of the union that was announced yesterday. Matthew, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. There's a lot more coming at you. State and local governments are reaping the benefits from the current housing market. Madison in the 60s takes a look at the city's dangerous streets. And your barometer's awful low. I'll explain why that is in an extensive weather report. But first, we'll take a break and check back in with world headlines from the BBC.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. Last week, the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan policy research organization, released a new report showing that state and local governments are raking in record revenues from fees on real estate transfers in Wisconsin. But what are real estate transfer revenues, and what does this mean for the local governments that are seeing benefits from high housing prices? To learn more, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Mark Sommerhauser, the lead researcher on this report for the Wisconsin Policy Forum. So to start things off, Mark, what is real estate transfer revenue? How is it collected and what is it used for? Yeah, that's a good place to start. So this is a fee um, that is collected on the transfer of real estate property in Wisconsin, the vast majority of which is simply real estate property that's being sold. Um, there are a handful of small exceptions to this, but by and large, it's real estate sales that are occurring within Wisconsin. Uh, and what happens is, you know, Wisconsin, like most states, uh, does collect a fee or a tax on those real estate tra- transactions. In Wisconsin, the way it works is that um, that fee is collected, that fee, I should say, is $3 for every $1,000 of real estate property that's being uh, sold or transferred, um, and it is collected by the Register of Deeds uh, in the county where the, the transaction is occurring. Um, and then the, the the revenues from that fee are split up. Uh, 80% of them go to the state government, and the remaining 20% uh, stay with, the, you know, with that county where uh, the transaction occurred. And now I realize that you've written an entire report on this subject, but just very briefly, <laughs> what did you find in your research? Uh, yeah, so I think we found, you know, the, sort of the top line finding, obviously, that we have here is that, uh, you know, the, the total revenues from these fees uh, increased very dramatically in fiscal year 2021, so the fiscal year that ended June 30th. Uh, they went up 37% just in the last fiscal year. That was the biggest one-year increase in, four de- in almost four decades. Um, that's obviously interesting just on its own for, for at least for our organization, because we do a lot of research on state and local, um, government and state and local government financing and so forth. So it's interesting on that front, but then kind of the other piece of it that we thought was very interesting was that, you know, whenever you see really big increases or decreases in these fee revenues, it's telling you something about what's occurring in the real estate market in Wisconsin. And, you know, for instance, in 20, uh, 2009, we saw a really dramatic decrease in these fee revenues because of what was happening with the real estate market at that time during the Great Recession. Um, this is kind of the, the inverse of that, right? Uh, we have seen an extremely dramatic you know, uptick in these fee revenues, which in this case, as we delve more deeply into it, is just an indicator of something that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with if they've looked at you know, home listings recently. Uh, we have a very, very hot real estate market right now in Wisconsin and nationally, and these fee revenues reflect that. Now, one thing that interested me in this report is the difference between just how much the amount of transfers changes from county to county. Some counties saw an increase of around 20 percent, even going up to 30 percent, while poor Vernon County over there was actually yeah. the only county to see a decrease in transfers. But for the most part, most of the county sits somewhere in between that. So I want to 
I want to ask what sort of leads to these big differences and how many transfers were taking place? Does it all have to do with how many properties were sold? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, one thing to be mindful of in looking at those percentage changes is that um, they, you know, looking at the percentage change from year to year is a little more useful in some of the larger counties where you have a greater number of transfers that occur. Um, Some of our smaller rural counties in Wisconsin, you have a much smaller number of transfers that occur annually. And so just a few more transfers in one year can cause a large, you know, can cause a big percentage change. Um, so that is one thing to kind of just keep in mind when you're looking at the percentage change just from one year to another. Uh, but that being said, I mean, we did see really an uptick, as you said, across the state in the volume of transfers, but especially, you know, it did, it did uh, seem to be more robust uh, in actually in some of our northern Wisconsin counties that had not seen quite as much of a volume of real estate transfers in previous years did seem to see a higher volume uh, of transfers. That's kind of interesting, and I don't know exactly why that is. There is some, I think, at least limited evidence that I've seen to suggest that there may have been a little bit of a uh, uh, movement of population to some of those counties, especially in north-central Wisconsin that are tend to be sort of tourism and recreational counties that, uh, where tourism and recreation is a large part of the economy up there. Um, and so I don't know if that was sort of a, uh, an offshoot of the pandemic and some of the social distancing that was occurring that, and, and work from home and that type of stuff that perhaps caused people to, uh, you know, to, to either buy or sell properties up there. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but yeah, that was kind of an interesting thing. But again, I, I do think the biggest takeaway in terms of the volume of transfers is that they were up almost everywhere, uh, which, is, which is pretty interesting. And now at the end of your report there, you talk about changes that could be considered, including changing the amount of how much money goes to the state versus the counties. And you mentioned that it wasn't until the 80s that back before the 80s, it was a 50-50 split. But um, then in the 80s, that sort of started to differentiate. In the conclusion of your report there, you suggest, hey, maybe going back to this now that these are rising. What are some other changes that could be considered with the rising amount of real estate transfers. Yeah, that's some good context there. You're right that, I mean, it used to be a 50-50 split. I think the other piece that's important context is that state government, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, tax revenues have been increasing increasing quite robustly. Uh, there's been a large amount of federal aid that's flo- that, that, that has found its way to the state. Uh, state government is in its strongest fiscal position in decades. Uh, And local governments are not uh, quite in the same position. Obviously, there is some variation from one local government to another. But broadly speaking, you know, the state really does quite strictly restrict their revenues, both their local property tax revenues and and the dollars they get from the state. And so um, local governments, broadly speaking, throughout Wisconsin are more fiscally constrained. And so we think that kind of the, the disparity there does point to the notion that you know, perhaps there might be an opportunity to revisit how these fee revenues are split up, whether it would be going back to the 50-50 model, whether it would be, uh, you know, another possibility would be carving out some portion of these fee revenues for municipalities as well. They currently, you know, don't receive any of them. And, you know, that would be another thing to look at to to assist, um, you know, some of the municipalities that in some cases are pretty constrained in terms of their ability to just pay for basic services. Um 
So that's, you know, one piece of it that we look at uh, just from the government side. And then, uh, you know, I would, if you if it's okay with you, like to talk about kind of the housing affordability piece, which I think is also the other major piece of kind of our conclusion there. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Cool. cool. So, you know, this has been a topic that we've done a, uh, a couple of reports on now recently, just because of, you know, again, the trends that we kind of outlined in this report. Um, you know, it's getting much more expensive to buy a home in Wisconsin and nationally. And and uh, the increasing cost of real estate also is, is having an effect on the renter, renter's market as well as as residential property becomes more expensive, that's that's pushing rents up also. And, you know, so we, we just think this is becoming a really, really important issue. And I think, you know, state and local policymakers are starting to pay more attention to it. And we just, um, we, we don't give any sort of specific prescriptions. Um, making housing more affordable, if you've ever kind of studied it, is not a simple topic. <laughs> it, it's pretty complex, and there are a lot of different ideas that um, different people will advocate. What we are just sort of saying in this report is we, we think that this is really becoming increasingly important. Uh, you know, obviously, as inflation has uh, um, increased, um, a lot of households are seeing increases in their other uh, basic expenses, such as food and, and gas and just, just basic household costs. And with the cost of housing also increasing, in addition to that, I, I don't think there's any question that there are some households that are really... Uh, feeling the pinch right now, and uh, we hope that state and local policymakers are thinking about uh, solutions that can help make housing more affordable here in our state. I've been talking with Mark Summerhauser from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, who was the lead author on their newest report on the rising revenues from real estate transfers here in Wisconsin. Mark, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks uh, for having me on, Nate. And from housing issues to the weather, we've been on the warm eastern side of a pretty big storm today. And though it took a while, we finally managed to realize some of that warming down here at ground level this afternoon. That warm air came in first, as it often does, several thousand feet above us during this past overnight. Indeed, one of the artifacts of that, namely thunderstorms, might have alerted you to what was going on up there. Model sounding showed warm air and moisture surging into the area on 60-mile-per-hour winds shortly after midnight last night, up at about uh, 3,500 or 4,000 feet. And that sent temperatures and dew points up at that level into the low 50s by 2 a.m. or so, providing enough buoyancy there to set off elevated convection, uh, even while it was still in the upper 30s down here at ground level. But with the daytime mixing and uh, continued southerly winds through the balance of the day today, we did manage to finally hit 53 degrees this afternoon. If you want a nice view of this storm uh, developing and evolving, you might have a look at the water vapor image of the U.S. with the pressure fields. That's right at the top of the featured images on the WORT weather webpage, and it shows you roughly the last uh, two days of goings-on up at jet stream level, but with the surface pressure field superimposed over top. So that'll give you some indication of the uh, kind of double-barreled nature of this storm. You can see the U-shaped parent upper air trough pushing ashore across Southern California at the beginning of that water vapor loop. 
With the northeast-bound lead-side upper jet uh, spinning up a surface circulation over about northwestern Kansas, which it then draws northeastward towards about La Crosse last night, that's what prompts that bright surge of moisture that you see northward up the Mississippi Valley ahead of it through here, of course, last night. And now that that parent trough has shifted eastward across Texas and on towards Louisiana, a second surge of upper winds is diving through the pit of that trough. You can see that. It's uh, deepened a second surface circulation over Oklahoma. That was actually this morning. And that's now lifted northeast uh, through Arkansas and on towards southern Illinois this evening. That's been carrying an outbreak of severe weather right the way along with it as it goes. The two lower-level circulations, then, one far to the southeast and one almost over us now, will be merging over eastern Illinois or southern Lake Michigan later tonight, deepening as they combine energies. And the resulting low will lift through lower Michigan tonight and then on towards Quebec tomorrow. So while the weather has currently become rather quiescent over the past few hours, that's occurring as Storm 1 weakens and basically drifts southeastward over us towards its rendezvous with the strengthening Storm 2. So that's the reason that your barometer is so low. We've got that low pressure area right over us. And uh, that, all of that also means that we should see uh, winds starting to veer northwest now, at least uh, shortly from now, and also begin to ratchet up as we get past uh, midnight, and that'll begin drawing in much colder air, cooling the lower part of the air column enough to change us over to snow by about uh, 2 or 3 a.m. the way it's looking. Uh, Short-range models are showing the column remaining saturated thereafter as the cold air deepens upward over us through about the mid-morning hours tomorrow. So uh, with some good lifting going on, we may see a good couple inches, maybe even three inches, come down by the time the morning commute begins, uh, which I think is one of the factors that prompted the National Weather Service to issue a winter weather advisories for areas north and east of Iowa County. We'll remain cloudy and cool and windy through the balance of tomorrow after the snow winds down, uh, with some clearing finally during the overnight and Friday as weak surface high pressure passes. But we'll have one more rather uh, compact little system pushing eastward at us later Friday into Saturday. That feature is appearing increasingly definite on the models now. And that storm looks to throw us primarily rain, I think, in the overnight and morning hours of Saturday. Maybe a little mixed precipitation to start before it then pushes quickly east on the day Saturday. We'll clear out Sunday uh, before a series of systems start to approach next week, uh, either separated or perhaps with some phasing between them in a larger system during the midweek period. There's a, quite a bit of noise still on the mid-range models on that score. But back to tonight, uh, light showers will continue to lift northeastward through the area, especially to the east and northeast of Madison over the coming few hours. And uh, light southerly winds will veer northwesterly at 4 to 8 miles per hour to start with and then begin increasing up to about 12 to 20 miles per hour as we get past midnight. Winds will get pretty gusty as we get on towards dawn tomorrow. Temperatures will drop to the low 30s by dawn tomorrow. Rain showers will be filling back in later tonight across much of the area, probably toward midnight or after, and those will switch over to snow as we get into the wee hours with uh, some periods of enthusiastic snowfall off and on as we get on towards dawn, so that may cut visibility some. 
Snow will wind down to intermittent showers by mid-morning tomorrow, but we may see passing flurries from time to time from what will be a low stratus deck much of the rest of the day. Temperatures will rise to the mid-30s at best. On northwesterly winds up at 10 to 18 miles per hour, those will come down as we get into the evening and overnight. Skies will break some overnight and will drop towards 20 by dawn on Friday. And Friday will start clear with light westerly winds and enough sunshine to take us into the low 40s before high clouds begin to veil the sun in the afternoon. Skies will continue to thicken downward overnight, and light snow may start up towards dawn Saturday, mixing and then changing to rain as the temperatures rise from the low 30s early on up into the 40s. Precipitation is likelier to be heavier uh, south and lighter to the north, but shouldn't amount to a whole lot in any location, I don't think. We may clear out by day's end, and then we'll be mostly clear overnight and Sunday with a low temperature around 30 and a high on Sunday in the upper 40s, and generally light winds through the period. At the moment at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 50 degrees. The dew point is also 50, so we've got some fog outside with visibilities probably less than a mile at this point. We're overcast otherwise at about 500 feet. Winds are out of the... Well, we're out of the south. They've gone calm for the moment and are about to switch to the northwest, and the barometer is falling steadily still. It's way down at 29.23 inches of mercury. And the time is now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to March 1967, when the university cracked down on disruptive protests, the counterculture blossomed, and tragedy struck a campus beauty queen. Stu Levitan has the news you can use from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, March 1967 When University Avenue reopened in November 1966 with four lanes heading west and a bus lane heading east, campus leaders warned of a likely tragedy. It finally happens on March 1st, as campus beauty queen Donna Schuler walks into the side of a bus and is injured so badly her left leg has to be amputated. Students, faculty, administration, regents renew their plea with the city to move the bus to Johnson Street, but the city does not. On the 2nd, the Wisconsin Student Association Senate votes 19-11 to 11 to ban the Madison chapter of Students for a Democratic Society from campus until at least next fall as punishment for the role its leaders played in the disruptive protest against the Dow Chemical Company in late February. WSA Senator Paul Soglin, who joined the peaceful mass occupation of a Bascom Hall hallway in a related protest, argues against the suspension. 
the ban, which SDS President Hank Haslick calls childish and the student court quickly overturns, greatly enhances SDS's popularity and expands its membership to about 300 overnight. On the 6th, Chancellor Robin Fleming issues a more meaningful statement, detailing that he will continue to use whatever force is necessary to ensure compliance with the administrative rule against disruptive protests. Fleming gives the document an oratorical flair, quote, Given the traditions of this campus, it is fair to assume that the faculty wants to preserve dissent but without anarchy, and that it wants order but without oppression. At a special meeting two days later, the faculty rejects 249 to 62, a motion by sociology professor Maurice Zeitlin to ban job interviews by corporations, quote, involved in producing war materials and adopts instead a policy allowing any bona fide employer to recruit on campus. Vilas Professor of Sociology William Sewell is among those voting to ban employers like Dow, which is returning for more interviews in October. Fleming will no longer be Chancellor then. On March 28th, after first turning down the top job at the University of Minnesota, he accepts the presidency of the University of Michigan starting in September. His successor as Chancellor is Professor Sewell. According to the results of a WSA referendum on March 21st, students want there to be a draft, but they don't want to be called for it. They vote 5,200 to 4,000 not to abolish the draft, and 5,000 to 4,000 that the university should stop cooperating with the draft by compiling class rankings. On campus, March is a great month for music, theater, and the underground press. From the 3rd to the 7th, the radical literary journal Quixote and the SDS present the anti-LBJ adaptation of Macbeth, McBird, in Agricultural Hall. It's just days after the world premiere in Greenwich Village, and playwright Barbara Garson makes a special appearance. On the 7th, the first underground newspaper in the state, Connections, is published as Bob Gabriner and Stuart Ewan expand their 1965 counterculture commentary act tracks into 16 edgy and irreverent pages. It's experimental at all levels, from layout to distribution, and, quote, dedicated to remaining underground rather than be buried above ground. The paper is delayed a day when North Shore Publishers in Milwaukee refuses to print it. The Courier Hub Publishing Company takes the job instead, but insists on blanking out certain words. The editors agree to an expurgated paper is better than having no paper at all. On the 11th, Rhythm and Blues great Smokey Robinson and all the miracles bring Motown to the Stock Pavilion for Greek Week. And on the 17th, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band plays two blistering Union Theater sets, earning cheers from the crowd and a condescending review in the Capital Times. Assembly Speaker Howard Freilich, however, apparently has a lower opinion of youth culture. On the 22nd, he calls on the legislature's powerful Joint Finance Committee to cut the UW's budget as punishment for what he calls, quote, the moral and social degeneration on the campus. Freilich is especially incensed at the Daily Cardinal's publication of a photo taken inside a bathroom. The biggest entertainment news happens on a rainy Easter afternoon in the town of Madison, as a crowd of about 4,000 attends the dedication of the Dane County Memorial Coliseum. 
The March 26 celebration comes barely four and a half years after Dane County decided to build a sports and entertainment arena. The building is 312 feet around and 98 feet high at its center, with 7,670 permanent seats and up to 3,330 temporary ones. It was designed by the firm Law Law Potter and Nystrom, whose founding partner, James R. Law, was mayor when the city first considered Frank Lloyd Wright's auditorium and convention center overlooking Lake Monona, in the park now named for Mayor Law. The Anthony Grignano Company was the general contractor. Some finishing touches remain, but Coliseum manager Roy Gumto vows everything will be ready for the inaugural event next weekend, the Zor Shrine Circus. In schoolhouse news, on the 16th, Superintendent Robert Gilberts upholds the decision by La Follette High School Principal August Vandermeulen to prevent graduate student Mark Greenside, UW66, from serving as an unpaid student teacher because he won't shave his goatee. Gilbert says the trim facial hair, quote, would not have a desirable effect on students. Greenside, who must perform student teaching to obtain his license, accepts an offer from the Verona schools. And on the 28th, the West Side school vandals strike again, as teens with slingshots and rocks break 21 windows and several reinforced doors at Van High School, causing about $2,000 in damages. It's the seventh such instance at Van Hise, Odana, and Orchard Ridge schools since September, accounting for nearly $10,000 in damages. Police nabbed five youngsters who explained they did it, quote, for lack of anything better to do. Cityside, on the 23rd, the council lifts parking meter restrictions on Monday and Friday nights, making street parking free after 6 p.m. And on the 24th, as is the long-standing practice, most Madison stores, all banks, and all government offices except the post office are closed from noon to 3 p.m. for Good Friday. But something new this year during services, anti-war demonstrations inside the First Methodist, Covenant Presbyterian, and Bashford Methodist churches. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to the live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporters were Layla Ma and Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to our feature contributor, Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan was the engineer this evening. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll be back in your ears tomorrow night at 6.30 until then, at 6. Until then, good night. W-O-R-T, Madison. Madison.